0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life.
1: I walked into the only other thing I knew, which was treatment. And I said to the front desk girl, I said, hey, do you need someone to like mop your floors? I will do anything. And... Through a bizarre series of events, I I met with the director of this treatment center and she said, you don't seem like the janitor type. And she said, what about if you train to be a counselor? I said, yes, I just, it was, it was the first time and would not be the last time I just said yes.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe and I am your host. Today, we have Dane Ensley. Dane grew up in an AA home. His mother and grandmother were sober and among a long line of family members who struggled with alcoholism and addiction. Dane grew up feeling destined to be an addict and also in recovery. After his parents split up when he was seven, he found himself looking for male role models who had the strength, bravado, and macho energy that he felt drawn to. He found them, but they also brought drugs and crime into his life. So at 18, he was hanging out with this group of men when things turned violent, leading to a stabbing and Dane going to jail. He was eventually set free and had the opportunity to run from that lifestyle, but instead doubled down on his drinking and using. By 22, he was nearly dead. He eventually found sobriety after going to a detox center, but immediately found himself unemployable. It was after he'd exhausted every idea that he walked into a treatment center and asked if they needed anyone to clean the floors. They offered him something much more than that. They paid for him to become a counselor instead. That moment launched what would become his life's work, helping people find recovery through becoming a counselor interventionist and eventually founding Reconstruction Unlimited. The organization has allowed him to work as a coach with the world's leading interventionists and travel the world working with a broad spectrum of clients. I had so much fun with Dane on this episode. We met probably about six months ago and completely hit it off. His story is incredible. And his understanding of alcoholism as a spectrum disorder and as something that afflicts so many different groups of people is an important one to share. Please enjoy my friend, Dane Ensley. Let's do this. Well, hello, married man.
1: Hello. How you doing?
0: I am well. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. I feel married.
0: You feel married?
1: I feel married. People are t- telling me that I look married.
0: Oh, huh. Yeah. That's not usually a compliment, but I, I, <laughs> I, I would say if there was a married that looked good, that would be the one.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: You come from a, an incredibly long line of people in recovery, your grandmother, 50 years and your mom almost, she must be 30 years by now, right?
1: Almost. Yeah. I think, I think mom is getting close to 30 years. I reckon she has 27, 28 years sober.
0: How was growing up with that?
1: I've been a member of a twelve-step program since I was four years old. That <laughs> I mean, if Mom has about twenty-seven years, that and I'm thirty-three, turning thirty-four this month. You know, since the age of four or five, I was in an AA meeting. I grew up in Pasadena, California, and. I remember being... I mean, some of my first memories are falling asleep in 12-step meetings on my mom's lap when you can still smoke cigarettes in AA meetings. And we'd go to the women's club in Pasadena, which doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it does. Or the 202 club, which used to be this sort of like biker hangout. And I remember like, falling asleep on a held angel's lap and then like playing, you know, learning how to play pool from some recovering dude that, you know, and mom would come home with us and dad would yell at mom, kids smell like cigarettes. Why don't you go marry your sponsor? I mean, the like the friction in the household was very palpable, but it was it was amazing to be, I think, introduced to that whole system and the whole community so early in life. I credit that sort of, Some of the sensitivities and some of my ability to really understand the program when I came in and got sober and got well with being introduced to it at such an early age. You know, it was like such a a fixture of my mother's life early on. And my grandmother on my father's side, she, yeah, she's got over 50 years. Clean and sober. And she's amazing. I mean, she's like, she's getting pretty old, but she's still right there. And every time I talk to her, she asks me if I'm still going to meetings. She asks me if I'm still talking to my sponsor. You know, we have this amazing AA chat between the two of us. And it really is. It's such a connection that we have and I'm so lucky to have. And talk about old school. I mean, she was in meetings with the founders of AA, right? She's that old. She's just a legend.
0: Do you think that your parents or your family or you were more equipped to handle when you started using or drinking because of the knowledge? Or do you think that it, in some ways, you were out to prove that you weren't like that? You weren't like them?
1: Yeah. So growing up, I grew up with the the recovery piece, that sort of generational recovery. And then I grew up with an even longer system of generational alcoholism. I think that when I got sober, mom was very... Those last couple years were very dark and she was very well-equipped to watch that whole process and be sort of like optimize her place in that dysfunctional system so that when she saw I was struggling enough, she kind of swooped in. The alcoholism in my family is tremendous. It goes back many generations There are many, many stories of the, you know, my great grandparents coming to this country. My great grandfather opened a bar. He was so such an alcoholic that he started, he opened his own bar downtown LA and he was sort of a famous alcoholic. And I saw that growing up. And I definitely related to it or I sort of saw it as the norm, right? I saw this recovery piece and then I saw this alcoholic piece and I think it it was sort of a defining piece of my upbringing, which was the dichotomy. Right. And the the difficulty choosing where I wanted to be, how I fit in. I felt, you know, met like many alcoholics. I felt like I never fit in. I didn't have a place or a position. I didn't have a group. I didn't have a community. I had my family. And my family is so big. You know, I have so many first cousins and aunts and uncles and second cousins and third cousins. And I didn't really have to have friends. We grew up in this sort of this sort of centralized place and we all congregated around my grandparents house and that was an amazing thing but it growing up in that that community of family what, with the alcoholism is it's very influential i mean you I had my first drink when I was 11. And I remember taking that drink. And I didn't have the experience like a lot of people have where they felt relieved or they felt the warm sensation coming over their body. I just remember thinking, this is what I want to do forever, right? I just thought, this is it. Like I've arrived. I watched all these people drink my whole life. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And I think feeling. The connection to my family through that practice of drinking was a big deal for me. I drank through my teenagers. I used drugs through my teenagers. It got really, really bad uh, sort of when when I turned 18 or so. And by the time I was 21, I had hit rock bottom. And mom, she positioned herself perfectly because of her experience in recovery, because of her ability to 12-step other people, right? And because of her knowledge on the understanding of people need to sometimes hit rock bottom. And I had at that time hit rock bottom. And there was many other places I could have gone. I'm glad I didn't go to those places. But it was perfect it was like it was almost flawless the way she did it and and i'll never forget the moment i got sober i was i woke up and it was you know my my pattern was sort of be up for 5 days straight drugs, drinking. My mother, I I would say connected to my mother because my mother had the experience drinking and drugging and there's the, the legend of her is so such a big deal in our family. And she walked into my apartment. She was the only person that had a key to my apartment, downtown Los Angeles. And she walked in and I was in bed, probably dope sick. And I was at the time I was dealing drugs. I was running around the whole, you know, I mean, sex, drugs and rock and roll. I carried a gun, and I'm really glad I was as sick as I was because I might have shot my mom walking through the door. You know, it was like she just she just came in. She said something to me that I'll never forget, which was, and she said this: she said, "I know that you know there's a better way to live." And in that moment, it just it was game over. I w- I was so delusional the last few years of my drinking and drugging that I didn't even think I had a problem. It wasn't like I was trying to prove anything it was just this was the norm this is where i was going
0: right and it's interesting I think about like what that takes as a parent to wait until the, that moment and knowing the insanity. I, I know you see this too. I see so many parents and I am honestly a candidate to be this parent, 100%. However, I see so many parents trying to negotiate with their high child and their child's like, I can't hear a fucking word you're saying. Like so many parents trying to reason with insanity. And the insanity is there, the insanity is in charge and trying to reason with insanity and going, why do I feel insane? And why is it not working? There are these windows of opportunity. And that to me is your mom coming at like that moment of being able to get that message. And, and it sounds like that was a big thing for you. But it also sounds like with the 12-step program, something I was thinking about was, well, you didn't belong to a 12-step program until you went out and did your drinking. So in some ways, it would have been advantageous for you to go out and do that so that eventually you could belong. Because the whole idea of these programs is that you have this past and growing up as a kid, you're like, but I don't have the past so I can't be part of.
2: Yeah.
1: And sitting in those meetings as a kid, I thought, I want to be like these people, right? <laughs> right. And you would, I mean, as a little kid, as seven, eight years old, that's what you're exposed to. So that's where you're going. You're going to like, you're going to kind of key into that stuff. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't necessarily want to be a hell's angel. I didn't necessarily want to be a drug addict or an alcoholic, but I think what I wanted to be, I wanted to have this experience I wanted to have some sort of experience where there was a you know this like uh, this struggle with that the sort of like an overcoming of that struggle and then the recovery from that, and I, I don't think I knew what the fuck I was uh, wanted to be or what it was. But I, I remember thinking, and when I was getting sober, I thought I had a lot of time to think about this stuff. And I got sober in Pasadena, and I got sober at the meetings. My mother stayed sober at, and I remember seeing people that I knew from when I was a kid. They all said, "Yeah, we knew you'd you'd be here," sort of thing.
0: So there are two kind of touch points with your father that I picked up on one was dad was not loving that mom was going to meetings, which in the big book, there is a chapter called two wives. And it literally is the narrative that you described, except in your house, it was it was the female and the wife and the uh, husband was the jealous one. And I hate that chapter, by the way, I I like hate that chapter. It's like nails on a chalkboard for me. Um, (laughs) But so there was some, you know, trouble there. And then I didn't catch whether or not he was an alcoholic and then the divorce. How did your father affect your childhood?
1: Yeah. Dad is not an alcoholic. You know, he's the kind of drinker that has two vodka martinis and is like, Oh, I love you so much. You know, you're like, it's, he just becomes loving and kind and sensitive and, he's such a warm loving person and dad and i's relationship was always sort of flawed and i and i equate that to my own misunderstanding of role modeling i just for some reason i didn't get the idea that I was meant to look up to my father in some ways. So I started to look up to other people. I I looked up to other male role models in my family and my extended family. I looked up to other role models outside of the family, and I think. A lot of that got me into quite a bit of trouble and he would, he does say this and he would, I'm sure be fine with me saying it. He is a classic codependent. I mean, he's like through and through codependent to a T and he's also. As a child, I witnessed him having a very difficult time handling and coping with resentment. And resentment, as we know it, is like a world killer, right? It's something that as recovering people, we cannot afford to participate in, right? We need to like nip that one in the butt. I don't know if dad at that time had the ability to grapple and cope with his own resentment. So... There was some version of my childhood where I felt uncomfortable being honest with my dad. And I was very honest with my mom. And this is, you know, again, this is such a huge... Yeah, rigorously honest with my mom. I remember when I first tried cocaine, I was like seventeen years old or something, and and I said, Mom, how much cocaine is too much cocaine? And she and That's I think she just laughed. I, what did she say? I, mean, I think she just laughed and I don't remember what she said, but <laughs> it was it's just such like a classic thing of me being so open with her about my experience, about me trying to manage and manipulate my own alcoholism and also my amazing ability to be incredibly dishonest while still appearing to be open it's like a weird manipulation oh, right is,
0: it is the it is the manipulation it is the most powerful one and i suspect i would fall for it still because it's so it's it's so confusing
1: so dad i think dad knew there was something going on for a long time. I just he i just don't think he knew enough and i i was I lied to him for years and years and years, and part of my early recovery was being you know rigorously honest as I was told to do, and that was very difficult to do with my father because it was years of lies and years of manipulations, and it's just the overwhelming sense of guilt and shame that you get from that is it's terrifying. But, you know, back to your conundrum of like, of working with the parent and the parent always trying to reason with the child alcoholic, it's, It's so interesting that it's so, it's as if our parents are afraid to let go. Uh, They're afraid to sort of allow us to have the experience we're meant to have. And I always say, you know, whether it's in my own personal recovery or it's in the work that I do, I always say, who am I to take away a spiritual experience from someone that they need to have? right? You might need to have that experience. You might need to be able to hit some sort of bottom so that you can understand it. I mean, I don't think if I wasn't allowed to touch the bottom, I don't think I would have been successful in recovery. There's a lot of other things I think that, that also amounted to me being successful in recovery, but that's definitely one of them.
0: So there's a couple pieces of that too, right? Which is that a bottom can be when you stop digging, right? That's one, you know, how how far can you go? And then another piece I think of as a parent, which I would have felt the same way and I agreed with you before I had children, but I would struggle... I would struggle at this point to allow my child to have, and maybe it's the time we're living in, which is that addiction's mortality rate is so terrible. I feel like if my kids went back to when I was, we went back to the 90s and my kids were using in the 90s, that it would be a lot easier to let them have that experience than I feel like it would be or will be as they get older in today's day and age. because. I don't want the spiritual experience to be death. And how do I reconcile that being what's quote-unquote meant to happen? How do I manage that? You work in recovery. You have a global business working with people all over the place. Do you see that? Do you see the fatality aspect changing how we might interact with the disease?
1: That's a good question. And it's a big question. And I think in the work that I do, we are always looking for ways to preserve life, right? I mean, that is, especially when it comes to crisis that deals with drug and alcohol addiction. We also work with some people who don't experience those things. And that's lovely work to do. But the crisis work we do as coaches and interventionists, Our sole purpose is to preserve life in those crisis moments. So I've had a couple experiences with death this year. We had a former client die at the beginning of the year. He killed himself. And we were in the process of working out a way to intervene a second time. It was very difficult. It was difficult for our team. It was obviously unbearably difficult for the family. Sitting with the family was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And then there was essentially the same thing happened a few months later although we were no longer connected to that person and we just we found out through multiple channels that that person had died and then the result was probably due to long term alcoholism and substance abuse so i think every consideration should be made and every intervention should be utilized for getting someone better and there's no reason to not do any of it i think that there is a way to educate parents and families on what that all looks like i think that's the key factor in allowing people to have some form of experience in which then they can get better right and the parents And say, right, we're getting this education. We're being supplied with this information of how to do that. And I I don't also, I don't have children. So it's, it's easy for me to sit around and say, here are my thoughts and ideas of how you should parent your children because I have read a million fucking books on parenting and I work with parents and I work with family systems and I think I know all this stuff. I don't have children. So my whole paradigm might shift when I have children. And then we'll do another podcast and we'll talk about how terrifying it is to have children.
0: I think a couple things. Number one, the information that we have, that we read, that we talked to, it doesn't change when you have kids. It's your understanding of what it would feel like to implement it. That's what changes. Like the like insanity of like, why don't you see this and where you can suddenly go, I see why you see it. And I see why, you know, like you make that connection differently, but The information, like the information I give before I had kids and now is the same to parents. I always say, I don't know if I can do it, but this is what will save your kid's life. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And that's the best I can do. You mentioned marrying someone who's not in recovery. Were you ever concerned about being in a relationship with someone who wasn't on the same program, so to speak, that you were?
1: I'm sure I was, Ashley. I'm sure there was the fear of being with a partner in early recovery that was drinking and drugging. And I was with In early recovery, I would have done anything anyone would have told me, except for the whole don't make a big decision in your first year of sobriety. I chased a girl to New York City. It became the best thing I could have done. I don't know that I would have stayed sober in LA. I think I had to remove myself from this environment and go have that experience. I always say I got sober in LA. I stayed sober in New York and I became a man in New York. I got sober when I was 22. It's 11, 11, 11. It's 11 when I had my first drink. 11 years later, I got sober and I've been sober for 11 years. It's like the Holy Trinity, right? You know. And I moved to New York and I fell into working in recovery. And if you asked me a day before I got sober, if I'd be working in the mental health field, I tell you to go fuck yourself because that's (laughs) for me, you know, it's been amazing.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70-plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show.
1: I've, in the last six months, I've become a massive, fan of this podcast. I mean, like a huge... I listen to every episode. Oh I like hang on your every word. And when you said a few weeks ago on an episode you were doing, I don't know if it was with a guest or a Q&A, you said, I have a very difficult time going to a winery, a vineyard. Like that atmosphere, that apparatus is something I don't do. I thought, oh, right. At the end of the month, I'm going to a very good friend's birthday party in Napa. And every single party, the entire weekend is at a vineyard. And I thought, I think I'm the same. I think I don't like that either, right? Bars are fine. Concerts are great. Weddings, no problem. The only thing that happens at a vineyard, a winery, a wine tasting is people are drinking wine. And it's funny in those situations, I often think as a recovering person that has many other interests and passions and obsessions now that I find to be acceptable or or productive or healthy, the idea of sitting around with friends and family and having... Having a glass of wine. I think that's why I struggle with that environment because there is still that, like you're talking about, the neural pathways are still there. Many of them have died and many of them have transformed. And I'm a big believer that as we recover, we really do change, you know, biologically and our brains transform and our ideas and our thoughts transform if we allow them to and we practice that. But there is that part of me like there is that part of you that still romanticizes parts of drinking. I don't know that I ever sat around and like had two glasses of wine and thought, Oh, this is nice with like, you know, my aunties and uncles and thought this, is, you know, this is a really nice wine, but I also am wildly obsessive. So when I'm sitting around at a dinner table at a restaurant and somebody, you know, it's a really nice restaurant, somebody, the waiter gives out the wine list. I think, yeah, I could be obsessed with that. Like I would know every wine and every year and everything about every little thing. And
0: yeah, it's like these obsessions and it's great. Right. If we took all the things about us and we put them towards good, we can have these great obsessions. We can have these great hobbies and whatever. But I have to think very carefully about, you know, getting into things. I had a girlfriend who got into BDSM, but like just a little bit, right? Just like just a tip. But she um mm-hmm. she gets so she starts she starts going to these clubs, whatever. And I I'm if you hit me, I'm gonna hit you back. Like that's it. That's all there is to it, right? Like <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's just, there's nothing like sexy exchange there. Like, let's go. I go with her, whatever. Two months later, I come over. She is making leather whips, like her own. She's got a book. She doesn't read. She's got a book. She's got a class. She's going to classes where they're making, they're making genuine leather floggers. I'm like, oh, it's like, it's like sewing for BDSM. What's happening here? Legend. Six months after that, she's a professional dominatrix in uh, downtown LA. If you met her now, she's married to a DA. She literally is suburban housewife. Like, you'd never know. She once got so addicted to knicker gum that she was going to doctors and like making herself sick and she could only order them on eBay. Like, that's how large... And I'm like, this is who we are. We are... So if we go, you know, if we're great in business, we're great in all these different things because we can hyper-focused, but you got to be careful where that focus goes.
1: That to me is one of the great pleasures of being in recovery is if I choose to, I can be ultra-disciplined about almost anything in my life. If I allow myself to be disciplined about my hunting practice about my exercise regimen, about my nutrition, about my work, about my relationships. I do it to a degree in which I'm I have that pride that comes with discipline. And a lot of the young men that I work with, I think struggle without sort of the that strong discipline role modeling, and I just I've become obsessed with the idea of discipline. It's so helpful to me as I stay clean and sober to be disciplined about just the little things and then they add up and then it's these things and then they add up and then it's bigger things. And when you're rigorous about some of those things, it frees you up to do great
0: things. So I I was diagnosed early on as ODD. You know, you must be familiar, yes? Yes, For ma'am. people who don't know, oppositional defiance disorder, right? I cut off my nose, spite my face, really would. I don't know. how That was a teenager, right? I don't know if that's the case anymore. But what's interesting for me about discipline and about that practice is, number one, I do so much better when I'm re- regimented discipline. I mean, I went to treatment places and went to a lot of treatment places, but I went to treatment places where it was military-esque. It was, you know, you were locked down. What's funny is that I've developed my life in a way that an ODD person would, which is, I don't answer to that many people. (laughs) I always had this life where discipline was instituted by other people. And then I would thrive, right? School or certain things. But then I became the institutor of my own discipline. And that is a whole other discipline in and of itself, which is really fascinating to me because when I can figure out a way to make it feel like it's imposed, then I do very well. But if I am the arbiter of the discipline, if I am the person making sure it happens, even in my own, I will disobey myself. I am so oppositional that my own rules I will not follow. That's been something particularly for me in, in recovery that, that I've had to wrestle with of how do I live this life that I want to live? I don't want other people constantly making my schedule, my discipline, whatever. But I need some semblance of that. So like bringing that in, looking for what you're, what makes you successful, what creates discipline in your life. I can be really disciplined at one thing and 10 other things are a hot mess. I will get that Christmas card photo shoot and photos out every year. My taxes... Let's just say I, a lot of extensions. Okay. I find, you know, it's, mental illness, right? Mental illness is this practice of like, okay, so that's who I am. Like, like it or, or not, that's who I am. How do I optimize for who I am? And that piece is what recovery is really about. Like, you're not going to not have depression or you're not going to not have anxiety. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll get really, really good. But you still are who you are. And I think people spend a lot of time... And I, I want to segue into the industry because I think people spend a lot of time fighting who they are instead of optimizing for who they are. You have a lot of experience with this growing up in, you know, in Los Angeles, and then also having family members and now marrying into an entertainment family. Have you seen the desire to be someone else instead of optimize for who you are?
1: All the time. Yeah. And it's, funny because we sat down in person for the first time sort of six months ago. And I remember vividly you saying, double down on what you're good at. Be and, and the way I took that was, be who you are. And don't be afraid to be who you are. And as I go through the process of continuously building my business and assembling this global brand of coaches, it's very easy to get stuck or to get trapped into what other people want you to be or who you think you should be based on someone else's opinion of who you should be and that's like a death trap
0: you have an incredible job very interesting that come to find out a lot of people don't know about where you have these coaches formerly known as sober companions and i know this because i'll be talking to someone else throw the word in sober companion they don't know what i'm talking about and i think everybody knows with sober companion as you your business you integrate into people's lives your coaches and you've done this you you move you know your profession you'll move in with people, people who pay to have someone move in with you and live a sober life with you. And I've heard some of the craziest stories I have ever heard from sober companions being in the craziest situations. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a sober companion and some of that crazy stuff?
1: Definitely. So I moved to New York early in recovery, and I didn't know how to do anything, right? I was like, really, literally unemployable. And I knew some people in the fashion industry and the entertainment industry and clothing, you know, odd friend here there. But they kind of just knew me as like dame drug addict and drug dealer. So we're not going to hire you to do anything because you're a fuck up. Like why would we do that, right? And so I'm like, I'm in New York for six months. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And I had that like overwhelming sense of I can't go back home with my tail between my legs. Right? I have to figure this out. So. I walked into the only other thing I knew, which was treatment. And I said to the front desk girl, I said, Hey, do you need someone to like mop your floors? I will do anything. And through a bizarre series of events, I I met with the director of this treatment center and she said, you don't seem like the janitor type. And she said, what about if you train to be a counselor? I said yes. I just... It was it was the first time and would not be the last time I just said yes. And I did it. And they were an amazing group of people that sent me to school to be a, a drug and alcohol counselor in the state of New York. And I worked there for a handful of years. And I got burnt out. You know, like you do on anything, especially working in this field, if you don't have the adequate support, you get burnt out and i also was very young and i was very new in recovery and it just it was a little too much all at the same time back in los angeles Met up with some friends. They told me about this thing called sober companionship. I looked at them like they were crazy. Like somebody's going to pay you all that money to go hang out with somebody. And they said, no, they'll fucking do it. And I thought, yes. Okay, I'll try it. Yeah. I interviewed with some people and I was given my first job in New York City. I did not leave that job, that client for 18 months. I was there with that client in that client's home for 18 months every day, every night, i knew the way, i knew how many brush strokes he took to brush his teeth. like i could lay in bed and know exactly where he was walking and why he was walking there at 3:30 in the morning. it's an amazing job to have because you really do If you're allowed to, you are very baked into that person's life. And you really get to create some significant changes. I did that for a handful of years for other people. I was sort of did it at a very high level, got to do it all over the world. And I realized after a handful of years doing it that the companionship protocol and apparatus in some ways had become more akin to adult babysitting than it was actually inspiring or motivating change. And I had some amazing mentors at the time, a couple interventionists that I was working with that said, Dane, the way that you do this and the way you want to do this is an amazing way and you should try that and you should just do your own thing. So I started to do that and I was I was the coach, right? And I, I sort of rebranded myself as what I call a mental health coach because with my clinical experience, I can help more than just the addict and the alcoholic. I can work with people with persistent mental illness. I can work with people with behavior. Behavioral disorders. And, you know, and then just like the normal human being with some things they want to tweak. I did that. And that really took off. And I, it was too much for me to handle on my own. I started to bring in the coaches that I had worked with in the past onto sort of my little practice that I had developed. And we were just like this sort of this team of people, men and women who wanted to figure out a way to do this work better, to do it more optimized, to do it in a way where we were really challenging the client and we were really driving that change process. It became even too big to sort of do with just a few people I brought on. And I, a few years ago, I created what I call an agency. We design therapeutic ecosystems for our clients. So a client will come to us with a set of problems. And we will assess that client and the client's family system, their professional system, sort of any system that we're allowed access into. And we will then bring it to our team and we'll design a custom set of solutions for that person. We work with many, many, many drug addicts and alcoholics. We work with people who are on all different spectrums of all different types of mental illness. We do it. With a level of specificity, I think, that is lacking in some of our in our industry. And we really love to do it. Like we, you know, again, getting out of bed in the morning and knowing that I'm going to go and help Design systems for people to get better is the best, in my opinion, the best job in the world. I would do nothing else. I don't think I could do anything else at this point. Being my own boss is like this—the only way I can do it. I, I can't have I can't have someone telling me how to do it. I need to be able to flex that creative muscle and that clinical muscle that I developed in New York City back in the day. When we work all over the world, and we work with some amazing clinicians. You know, we bring in coaches and therapists. It's like. Kind nutritionists and trainers and build a whole package for our clients because we believe in, you know, holistic wellness. We believe in you have to get better in all ways to get to truly get better.
0: Your clients are a group of people also that I think a lot of people don't wouldn't believe have drug and alcohol and mental health problems because they probably would never admit it. Can you describe a little bit for people like, hey, guess what? These people have problems too. And like who some of your not not revealing their identities, but just, you know, broadly speaking, who some of these clients are.
1: Yeah, we work with a pretty wide swath of people in the entertainment industry. It's amazing. And I I think people are often confused when they find out that the person on, you know, the cover of Vogue, you know, all of these magazines and these websites and this thing and that thing, whatever, right? Struggles with some really debilitating shit. It's interesting to see how our culture is designed around propping up these people who are influential and how those people design their own experience and then how their experience is visualized or seen by the public. It's not at all that way, right? Like, it's all a design and that's okay. I mean, that's that's good. That's good for their business. It's good for their careers. I have no problem with it and I have many friends that do just that and they're lovely human beings. Don't believe everything you see, especially people in early recovery, especially people that are, that are not in recovery yet, right? To idolize some of these people people, there are some parts of them that are worth idolizing for sure, right? The hard work and the creativity that goes into all of that, whether you're managing big firm or fund on Wall Street, or you're an actor in, you know, successful roles and going to these awards, whatever it is, like, there's so much about that person, those types of people that are so admirable, and I think is worth in a way idolizing. Always remember, these are just normal people. There is so much of their life that is so sideways. And that's okay. And some of them are doing the work to get better and some of them aren't.
0: Many people don't realize, and this is the thing that just shocks me. Like you can be incredibly, incredibly well employed, incredibly wealthy, and you know, CEOs, executives, head fund managers, actors. I mean, I think I think most people believe that actors can be <laughs> drug addicts and alcoholics, but I, there are so many other positions that people are like, no, they have a look at look at look at their life. And what I think is interesting having seen a lot of it up close is we all know what drug addiction looks like on Skid Row. We all know what it looks like. We all know what it looks like in the tents. We have the pictures, right? We know what that looks like. A lot of people don't know what it looks like when you have a lot of money. It looks very similar, but the surroundings are different. And people, I don't know if they don't want to believe it or they don't believe it or they can't believe it. But when you have a lot of money, you can mask. You're using your addiction for much longer. I and. Mean, it's in some ways can be more deadly, in some ways, can save you a lot of consequences. It kind of depends on the person. Having had so many friends who were coaches and sober companions and clinicians, what I Have seen over the years is that money is often a complication, except for the ability to afford the resources to get better. In that case, it makes a big fucking difference. But in the using part, it's not helpful. Like it is not helpful. It is an absolute mess. It makes it worse until you get to the resources piece when it's really, really helpful because there's a lot of things to help them with. My friends who with the sober companions, one thing I see you guys fighting all the time is you fight the money. The money, that brings you in, that pays your bills is also the thing that feeds their addiction, their codependency, their mental... Like, whatever it is. And because the clientele are so used to being in power, being in charge, getting what they want, you have this whole other complication. And it's a niche. It it requires a certain set of skills that is different because the clients can afford to tell you to go fuck yourself and they can hire 10 more of you. A lot of the time, if you're trying to actually change their life, they'll fire you. You have a skill, which is, I know you're in charge of all of corporate america but right now i'm the fucking captain okay yeah and you're this is my jungle and
1: you, you you you're in it but right. this is my fucking game if you want anything else fuck off and go do it. And that's okay. I mean, we're not for everyone, but I'm not interested in sitting around and keeping status quo. I'm not interested in being an enabler of bad behavior, especially when it comes to people's lives. To really intervene in someone's life is to cause friction. It is to cause... Like to disrupt. So if we're not in the business of disruption and we're not in the business of figuring out alternate ways of doing things, I don't know that we have a place in this industry. We got a part of why we've designed our brand, the way we've designed it is so that we can confront all that and really try through the work that we do to prove that we are in the business of radical transformative change. In my experience... Putting one person with another person and having that person be able to relate to that other person, their experience, strength, and hope, right? And we learn this stuff in the program. It's life-changing. It can be life-changing, right? I have a couple coaches that if you put them in a room with someone, you could leave them there for two days. Two days later, that person will be a radically different person. Like that's how good these people are. You don't need to be able to afford my agency. There are so many things available to everyone that are free. You know, I didn't get better through my agency, right? I got better through treatment that was very, like, on the scope of things. Knowing what I know now is very was very reasonably priced. And then following that, I went to a 12 step program and I committed to that. And that is like, it's free. I threw a couple quarters in a bucket every once in a while when it would go around the room. But if you're struggling and you're looking for resource, the resource is right in front of you. Find that resource and then eventually, once you've kind of started to recover, the resource just gets endless.
0: You know that was why we started Lion Rock was because th- we felt like there was there were two ways to do it. You could go Medicaid free, Salvation Army, or you could go super high end. It's a mortgage on your house. We wanted to create something in, in between, in the middle, and and it's been very successful. And it's not for everybody or at every stage or whatever, but it's been very successful for a lot of people as an affordable option, and and then creating other forms of resources and trying to help. And there are a lot of people out there that need what all of us, all the different things that we have to offer and so many different resources. And now there's an acceptance of so many different ways to get help and to get sober, to get whatever you need to recover. And I think that's really cool too, because it's not just AA, 12 step. There are other ways to do it. And you know there weren't other ways to do it when I got sober. And so I was like, well, I'm going to die. So better do this. And so I did. And so that's what works for me and great. But isn't the only way the the biggest thing is to keep an open mind and and to stay hopeful because if you See what we've seen, miracles absolutely happen.
1: Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I've been in rooms with interventionists doing the work that they do, getting people sober. That should sort of you look at, think, those people shouldn't get sober. You know, you just think, how is that person going to get better? And there's some amazing people out there that really know how to get people better. And it's really impressive. And I'm just glad I'm around to see those miracles, those little little golden nuggets in the work that we do it's it's about the little the little nuggets you know it's you don't always get like a big dump from the pot of gold it's it's just the little things and it's the little you know oh that person that that person is there and that you know somebody comes back to you after a few years and says look where i'm at and it's like oh man that's it's just, it's a great feeling to know that you're around people doing that great work and in some ways leading the charge on some of that work and i, I love it it's great
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and being a part of this. And hopefully people will hear this and hear a story of hope from both of us and all the different resources. Where can people find you, Dane?
1: People can find me on Instagram at Daneensley, D-A-N-E-E-N-S-L-E-Y, and they can find our company at Reconstruction Unlimited. We have a website called reconstructionunlimited.com. Uh, if you want more information on and, us, and Vogue, go, go right, our website. they can find
0: you on <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> They can find yes, they can find me in Vogue. <laughs> And if you need help, call us, you know, our numbers there, our websites there, our emails are there. Don't let the, that barrier to entry that we talked about be, an you know, an even bigger barrier to entry and not picking up the phone. I'm very happy. And the people that work for us are very happy to take anyone's call and steer them in the right direction. It may be with us. It may be with someone else, you know, so we we will follow you through that process. You know, we'll help you figure out, how to get better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Ashley. Talk soon.
0: Today, my friends, I am here with producer extraordinaire. Scott Dratchelman, as Siri would say.
2: Wow, that's such a nice honorific, you know? I think maybe I could just like should I get business cards printed up like that or something just so that I can absolutely for networking and such just so people know you're comfortable with the quotes and then like uh, and then I just like underneath it like totally an asterisk says Ashley okay cool 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 Yay.
0: great
2: no I love Dane's episode I um the first thing that popped into my mind honestly is just how interesting it is this like multi-generation recovery story right like it's when he was talking about being in that and then wanting to be a part of that, that connected with me in a way because I I had all these ambitions too. Where it's sort of like
0: you wanted to be an alcoholic as well.
2: I wanted to be an alcoholic as well. No,
0: <laughs> no you know they I, always say no one ever wakes I up and wanted, thinks, to. I wanted to be an alcoholic when they grow up. Like, <laughs> but maybe he did.
2: For me, it was like more like I grew up in such a like suburban kind of environment and stuff like that. So when he was talking about, it, he's like, yeah, you know, I I didn't have aspirations of like falling into addiction, but I wanted to be a part of this community. It's sort of like. I understand yeah. that. I understand. I want to be that. a
0: biker gang, but I don't want to be a heroin addict. Can right. you help?
2: Right. <laughs> Ask it for a friend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Dear college career coach.
2: I just like the leather, you know, and the, yeah. the patch, the yeah. patchwork. I've always been yeah. a fan of patchwork. You want to be a biker too? I get it.
0: I've wanted to be everything. <laughs> I still want to be a biker. Okay, it's let me just tell you, late. it's not too late. Well, a couple things. Number one, when Dak, my husband, and I broke up, which I broke up. Long story. He's going to kill me. Uh, but. We broke up. I left. Okay, good. I uh, just to make sure.
2: <laughs> In case you're listening, Dax, In she case you're did, listening. She gave the correct it version was of this story. a huge
0: mistake. I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, but I was like out there living my best life, as he calls it, the summer of love. <laughs> and so... I went to get my motorcycle license and when we got back together, I was like, I had the appointment to go get it. And he was like, if you get that, we aren't going to get back together. He literally was like, so now my threat is if you get your motorcycle license, I will get mine. And that keeps my husband off. That's so scary to him that that keeps him off a motorcycle. However, when I watch Sons of Anarchy, (laughs) here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. I not only want to have sex with Jax. Yes. But I wanna be Jax. Okay. I don't aspire to be the girlfriend or the wife. I wanna be the head of the male biker gang. Is I that some I... sort
2: of narcissism though, too, where you want to have sex with yourself? Is that a thing too?
0: Entirely <laughs> exactly possible. Not gonna not gonna rule it out. Not gonna rule it out. I'm happy being female, but I gotta tell you, like, I regularly wanna be the male character in the movie. I'll be the head of a male biker gang. You know, that's my aspiration. Of course, I ended up like a suburban mom, but you know, a girl can (laughs) dream.
2: I think that's just, that's probably just an aspiration because there's just, there, are the world set up in such a way where it is, uh is—it's it is, always uh, the male, yeah. Being cool,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Like I watch Vikings, and I'm like, I want to be a Viking. Yes, is there something wrong with me? I understand that. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've established that on the four seasons of this podcast. You just—you like
2: the boats part. That's all. It's not the pillaging as much as the boat. It's the—it's the pillaging. I know. It's the pillaging. <laughs> it's mostly the pillaging yeah it's yeah it's the
0: grand entrance
2: <laughs> you know i've just always had this thing where i want to light buildings on fire and i'm just one of that since i was a kid you and you say know I whatever wanted
0: to light a building or two <laughs> on fire right <laughs> (laughs) Not gonna lie. Were there people in it, in that imagination? I can't tell you. That's not for me to say.
2: Mm -mm. Yeah. We don't know. Exactly.
0: Listen, I was told it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you do. And I take that very seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Because if it mattered what I thought, I'd be in deep fucking trouble.
2: It's best not to dig around in there. It's best not. It's just leave it Leave it alone.
0: You know, like what I said to Dane, sometimes you just got to accept who the fuck you are and Absolutely. be like, yeah, that is me. And do I wish I could change it sometimes? <laughs> you get. Have I changed a lot? Yes. Some of those things, they're immovable, friends. I'm in full <laughs> optimization mode because I'm like, well, looks like these things are permanent. <laughs> uh, you take just... enough showers, friends, you figure out what's the mold. <laughs> Oh my gosh.
2: I have not heard that one before. (laughs) Made that
0: one up. Made it up.
2: (laughs) Made that up on the fly. I don't want to ask a follow-up question of what the other things are that are washing off. I don't want to know. I think I don't want to (laughs) know.
0: Mud, Ah. muck, shame. (laughs) Regret. Okay. So I had this mole on my elbow. Mm -hmm. And it was like enough. I've had enough of you. So performed a minor surgery on myself. Yeah. Very minor, very surface level. Right. Right. So I took that thing off with a razor blade a little bit. It was sticking Mm. out a little bit. So I just took the (laughs) the top off and didn't feel great. I'm not going to lie. Didn't work. I'm not going to lie. So anyway, I ended up a year later, whatever I end up at the, um, the dermatologist and she's like, you know, and I'm telling her the the history of this mole and uh, (laughs) on my fucking elbow and I tell her, yeah, I've, I've cut it off, you know, one time before. And she sort of looks at me like, haha. And I'm like, no, I I cut it. No, like I actually cut it off. And she's like, okay. She's starting to realize like, okay, where are the exits? And she goes, what did you use? And I was like, well, you know, I used a razor blade. And like every... Like she had an assistant in the room and they look at me like I have fucking 10 heads. Okay, no. But the next part of this story is very important. So they look at me like I have 10 heads. Then they bring in the tray to remove the stupid fucking mole on my elbow and guess what they use
2: box cutter A
0: fucking razor blade. Yeah, box cutter. <laughs> <laughs> they use the exact same razor blade and do the exact same thing, except this time they have Novocaine so they can go deeper. I'm like, you fucking people trying to make me feel bad, look stupid because I did this. But really, in reality, I had all the right tools, just not in a lot of schooling. <laughs> and I had, no, I had no, I didn't have the lab coat and I didn't have the Novocaine.
2: You know, I don't think it's like for like. I think it is. <laughs> It's like being like, no, I think, you know, I think it's this apples, uh, to apples, baby. This double wide is not the same thing as this mega mansion. You know what I mean? They're they look they're, my double wide. Their are approx- approximations of each my double
0: wide houses the same amount of people because your mega mansion. <laughs> And for that, I give you apples to apples. It is a domicile that houses the same amount of people. All right. Both called homes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't use a thermometer per se. I... um... I sit on the top of the stove and when my buttocks is the same uh, temperature, it feels... It doesn't
0: work. That analogy doesn't (laughs) work. I use the same... She had the same square razor blade as I had. Exact same. And I know because I took a video.
2: Oh, boy. We'll put that in this on social. That won't get pulled down, I don't think.
0: (laughs) They're like, this bitch self-harm. Like, no, it's not self-harm. There's a <laughs> this weird is called
2: saving money. Thrifty. And
0: they're like, don't you have insurance? I'm like, yes, not the point. Okay.
2: I do, but you have to make an appointment. And I yeah, want it that gone was a lot of work. now. Listen, I want it gone now.
0: It was a superficial wound. <laughs> Calm down.
2: It's been a very, uh, you know, kind of a uh, uh, confessional type vibe. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. Listen,
0: if I ever get divorced, I am, you know, I'll be employable, but I won't be dateable. So there's that.
2: Well, you know, I just... <laughs> put myself
0: the... off the market here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> much in the same way that even when all the signs are telling you to stop, you just can't find a way to do it. I, f- I feel the same way about, Oh, about, it's coming about what's about to happen here. I, oh, I, I get I'm constantly crazy. people telling me to stop and, uh, and, okay. and I, I just, just fight through it. You know, <laughs> Ashley, what do a tick and the Eiffel tower have in common? They're both They're like, surrounded. Go on.
0: No, that's not something I'm going to say out loud. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. They're both parasites.
0: Mm. i was gonna make a paris joke but i decided not to and i'm glad
2: it's good it's better if you leave it on me where it it belongs
0: you know yeah
2: just egg on my face you know what i mean that's best for everybody i've already
0: (laughs) done enough already
2: (laughs) there's plenty of eggs to go around oh boy well we're rooting for you this week as always we hope it's a great week we hope uh that you if you need to go to the doctor you just go and you don't try to take care of it on your own um You do take
0: care of it on your own. We know (laughs) that you know what you're doing. You'll use the right tools. Don't be ashamed.
2: I don't think we want to (laughs) openly encourage people to uh, do their own surgery. They do. do. That's shaming. If that's the okay, that's where we're safe. Ashley, do you have anything for him?
0: I hope you loved Dane. And I hope you follow him on Instagram and follow his company, Reconstruction Unlimited, on Instagram. I hope you follow Dane on social media. Get in there. Hit that follow button. Really hope that you take a second to go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate and a review. That shit is podcast gold. So if you're listening for free, everyone's listening for free. If you're listening for free, go in there. Help us out. Hit that tip bucket. Pretend we're the Salvation Army outside the grocery store.
2: Ring, 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 ring.
0: Yeah. This is your chance. <laughs> go drop it.
2: You can't see my Santa Claus costume, but I've been so hot during this segment just for you guys.
0: Exactly. I'm a little elf. (laughs) Begging for reviews. Uh, No, seriously. (laughs) Get in there. (gasps) Hit us with that. Five stars if you think we deserve it. Type a little something. Scott's your fave. Whatever you need to say. Your favorite episode. Hit submit. We appreciate you. See you next week. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.Life. LionRock.Life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.LionRock.Life today and enter promo code Courage. For one month of unlimited peer support meetings, free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.